0: So we're on page four hundred thirty four if you've got one of these nice clean Bibles um, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz and the Terminite, Bildad, the Shuite, and so forth and so far the Nymethite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon them, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights." No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Isn't that cool? They sat with him for seven days. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it, may no light shine on it, may gloom and utter darkness claim it once more, may a cloud settle over it, may blackness overwhelm it, that night may darkness seize it, may it not be included among the days of the year, nor entered in any of the months. May that night be barren, may no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, Le- you know, something like that. May its morning stars become dark, may it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I perish? Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why their knees? Why were their knees to receive me, the breast that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest, with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins. With princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground, like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter soul, to those who long for the death that does not come, who search for it more than hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food, my groans pour out like water. What I have feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. Oh, gosh. Um, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. And then we're up to page 856. uh, Matthew 27, verses 45 to 49. Um, So, for Oh, I'll give you a minute, shall I? You probably know it by heart anyway. Um, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice Eli, Eli, Lama Shebastiani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered that to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah came to save him. And that's that's all for now. Thanks
1: so much. All right. Confronting passage from Job 3. Thanks so much for reading that so well. And I've been asked to let you know that tonight at 7, just before the prayer and praise night, we will actually have a QA for half an hour from 7 credit and praise starts at 7.30, so if you're extra keen to ask some questions, uh, pop up here early. But we're looking this morning at, at Job chapter 3, so please have that in front of you. Thanks. A little snack for me. Let's keep going. wonder if you've ever had a, a delayed reaction to pain, uh, had, had an injury of some kind, but you're so hyped up with adrenaline that you haven't felt it for a while. There's this interesting story of, of a man, Donald Wyman, his name, who was uh, doing some uh, logging in Pennsylvania out in the middle of nowhere and got trapped. Uh, his leg, a tree fell on his leg, and he was trapped and calling out for an hour, waiting for someone to hear him, and realized he wasn't going to escape. And so the solution was that he had to amputate his own leg. He had a pocket knife on him. He had broken the leg; it was bleeding out already. He was worried that he would he would die, and so he took a pocket knife, amputated his own leg, and not only that, he hopped in a car and drove himself fifteen minutes down the road for help. Incredible. <laughs> <Stop>. uh, <laughs> 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 but, he hops, sorry, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you, you can imagine it, can't you? The, the, after the initial shock and he walks in through the hospital, you can imagine the agony that he would feel after it, the pain sort of s- sunk in. I uh, wonder if you've had that, that kind of experience. Um, not Not that exact experience. Actually... It's interesting, there are a number of stories like this of people who've been stuck under boulders and things. It's amazing. G- Google it, the amount of times this actually happens and people have to take extreme measures. <laughs> Chapter 3 of the book of Job, th- this really is, is, is Job at the point that he begins to feel the pain. This is the point at which the pain hits. Because chapters 1 and 2, that was the, the, the trauma, the tragedy. All at once, everything, he loses. Children, property, his health. And he sits in the dust, a shadow of his former self. Still praising God after all of it. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and it's possible as you finish chapter 2 to think, well, there we go, this should be my response to suffering. All you need to know is Job's reaction. There we go, be like Job. Praise God, take the suffering, and move on. But that's unrealistic, isn't it? Because when you're in pain, you scream. And in chapter 3, Job screams. What do we do with pain, despair, confusion? What do we do with questions about God? Is it less spiritual to complain? Uh, to receive the complaints is fine, but is it okay to to complain, to express sorrow, like we heard from Job, instead of simply saying, blessed be your name? We're going to look in this section at the, the first cycle of speeches. The way the book of Job is structured is that Job has three friends we'll meet, Job speaks, and then a friend speaks. Job speaks the second friend, and then Job again, and then the third friend. And that's one cycle of speeches. We're going to look at the first cycle in this session. There's actually two more cycles where the same pattern is repeated. Where each of the friends have their turn responding to Job's cry where they attempt to make sense of Job's suffering and give him advice. Firstly, let's have a look again at chapter 3 and and Job's cry, Job's cry of dereliction. Job chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. May the day of my birth perish, the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness, may God above not care about it, may no light shine on it. Here is a man in deep despair. He wants the day of his birth erased from memory, as if he was asking, I want that day in the calendar to be ripped out. And he complains, why does God sustain the life of those who suffer so greatly? who despair of life itself. Verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? It's interesting in verse 23, that language of a hedge around the the suffering man. Because it's the language that Satan used in chapter 1. There, Satan said, God has built a hedge around Job to protect him. But here, for Job, God's hedge is like a prison, a suffocating presence. And he simply wants God to leave him alone. What do we do with these words from a believer? They're uncomfortable, aren't they? They're even reckless as Job asks for trouble. As he curses. Now, cursing is the one thing you're not supposed to do. Earlier in the story. verse 8, chapter 3, 8, he he speaks of rousing Leviathan. The sea monster that we will meet at the end of the book. Inviting the chaos of the world to crush on, as if Job, Job wouldn't mind, if the chaotic forces of the world just overwhelmed him. Imagine a friend of yours, speaking in this way. Imagine hearing their suffering expressed in these words. How would you react? How would you respond? How would you address their grief? Would you confront them? Would you offer them advice? Would you change the subject because it's too awkward to face? Well, in chapter 4, Job's friends begin to respond. They feel just compelled to say something. They can't remain silent. It's so disturbing what is coming out of Job's mouth. They've sat with him in silence for seven days, as we heard, but now they're going to share their wisdom. And we meet the three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, three loyal friends from different parts of the ancient world. And they come... Presenting the best of the wisdom of the cultures from which they come that they're rep- representing this this wisdom and they they come to bring this wisdom to their friend now it can be confusing reading the speeches of these three friends because actually a lot of what they say sounds pretty pretty good uh, It's orthodox, they defend God's justice, they defend his holiness. A lot of what they say is actually quite similar to what we might read in some of the Psalms or the Proverbs of the Bible. They're passionate for God's glory. But the big surprise is, at the end of the book of Job, God rebukes them. God says he's angry at what they've said. Uh, Flick with me if, if you can, just quickly to the end. In chapter 42, because these words are really important in our understanding of the friend's advice and their wisdom and how we read it. Chapter 42, verse 7. He says to the first friend, Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And so it's confusing because despite sounding very orthodox, they're missing something. And so they present a false picture of God. They haven't spoken the truth about God. And they draw false conclusions about Job himself and his suffering. And so we need to take that into account as we read their speeches. Now back to chapter 4 and the first friend, Eliphaz. For Eliphaz, God is a great supernatural saving Judging God. He's a God who, who speaks through visions. He's a God, no one is pure before him. And Eliphaz says, Job, what happened to the strong, confident Job we used to know? You should have a hope if you believe in this kind of a God. Chapter 5, verse 17, he says this Blessed is the one God corrects. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal from six calamities. He will rescue you. And seven, no harm will touch you. See, God is powerful to save. Don't you believe in that God, Job? Accept his discipline, turn, and he will lift you up. How about the second friend, Bildad? We meet Bildad in chapter 8. Bildad, well, his God is the God of cause and effect, a God who rules the world with justice. We can see from the natural world that God rules the world according to cause and effect. And so Bildad says, well, it's obvious your children sinned and they reaped the consequences, cause and effect. But that means, actually, that there's still hope. Job, chapter 8, verse 5. If you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will your future be, cause and effect. It's Bildad, the third friend, Zophar, chapter 11. Zophar's been listening along. To the conversation, listening to Job's complaint and he's disturbed by the disrespect, actually that Job shows to God for Zophar, God is patient God is even holding back from rebuking Job, so patient is this God in fact Zophar says God is punishing you less than you really deserve that's how patient he is and the solution Zophar proposes, chapter 11, verse 13. Yet if you devote your heart to him, if you stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault you will lift up your face and you will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as what has gone by. See, what's the basic message of these three It's that God is a God of righteousness, and everything he does is just. He rewards the righteous, he punishes the wicked, and God would never allow anything else in his universe. Now what's missing is the possibility that Job is actually innocent. What's missing is God might be behind the seeming chaos that has come across Job's path. That there might be some mysterious purpose that God has that they don't understand. See, Job's suffering doesn't fit into their picture of God. And doesn't that describe a lot of people today? Doesn't that describe many of our contemporaries, even Christians Stay close to God and he will bless you. If something bad is happening to you, it's because you're out of step. You're not aligned with his plans in some way. Of course, it's a, it's a view of God that's great as long as things are going well for you and as long as you're on top of the world. But when things fall apart and you have this view of God your faith can fall apart very quickly. Well, as you can imagine, how is Job feeling as he listens to his friends? You can imagine he's not feeling particularly supported. And he says in chapter 7, verse 15, that you you friends, you're you're like streams that dry up in the heat of summer. You're like the worst of friends. When you need them most, they're gone. And he appeals to them in, in chapter 6. Listen to these words. Chapter 6, verse 24. Teach me, and I'll be quiet. Show me where I've been wrong. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? Would you even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend? But now, be so kind as to to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Do not be unjust. Reconsider. My integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? See, what what is Job's response? He is determined to argue his case. And their attacks against him have just made him even more determined. He's innocent, and he knows it and he's not going to be silenced, he is going to continue his complaint. Chapter 7, verse, uh, 7 verse 11. I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Verse 17. What is mankind that you make so much of them, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I've sinned, what have I done to you who sees everything we do? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For soon I will lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. If you're... keen observer of the Bible, you'll hear in those words an echo of Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? This wonderful poem of delight in God's attention and care for humanity. And yet here, Job turns it around in a kind of parody. Why does God pursue me? could he just leave me alone for a second? Now, Job has a dilemma, doesn't he? Because how do you take a complaint to God? How do you take God to court? Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of asking to speak to the manager and they say, I am the manager. (laughs) But imagine it. What, What is the problem? God himself is the object of Job's complaint and we're we're invited to think through what that would be like to take a complaint to God's head office in chapter 9 <clears throat> job wonders aloud if i if i actually faced him what would it be like verse 3 god is not going to answer these charges that i'm bringing against him he just won't address them he says god is unpredictable He shakes the earth and removes mountains, verse 4 to 12. He says, it would be an unfair contest as well. God would completely blow me away, intimidate me into silence. Verse 20, how can you defend yourself against God? Because even if you were innocent, as soon as I speak, God would win the argument anyway and my mouth would condemn me. And so what is the problem? Well, It's not a fair fight, is it? if it's us against God. And and Job says, if only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand on on us too. But but there, there isn't. And so given all these challenges, we might think that Job would give up. That he would just, okay, fine. I'll return to the dust. But no, he doesn't shut up. He's convinced his friends are wrong and they are provoking him to become louder and louder in his complaint. He's convinced they've been speaking falsely for God, and he's convinced that God is far bigger and unpredictable than they are willing to admit. And so he's going to take his case right to the gates of heaven, come what may. Chapter 13. Have a look there. Chapter 13, verse 18. Now I have prepared my case. I have prepared my case. I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand from me. Stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me, I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply to me. Job is in anguish, isn't he? What do we do with this grief? These words of sorrow and complaint. They make us feel uncomfortable, don't they? A believer saying these things out loud. Most of us would would never dare to say some of the things that Job says here. Have you ever argued with God like this in your prayer times? (laughs) Have you ever, in your your small groups, complained out loud to God together, like this? And yet it's interesting because people do this all the time in the Bible. The psalmist: How long, O Lord? Why do you stand far off? Why do you ignore my prayers? Job is perhaps the boldest in in the Bible, the most audacious. Throughout the scriptures, we see believers saying these kinds of things. And, and it's worth asking, is this because actually we have the stronger faith? Whose is the stronger faith? The more robust faith? The more real faith? Perhaps actually it is the one who is more honest with God. More honest. About God and His ways. So, a month ago, uh, Tim Keller, Christian author, many of you may have read his books, uh, finally died of pancreatic cancer after a long struggle. And in his book on suffering, a, a fantastic book on suffering, he says this One of the main ways we move from God as abstract knowledge to a personal encounter with God is through the furnace of affliction. One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. A final question, one of the big questions of this cycle this first cycle of speeches is, do the innocent suffer? Are, are you willing to acknowledge that within God's universe, there is such thing as innocent suffering, that, suffering that is not deserved. Does God allow people to experience pain and catastrophe? but not as, a, as some sort of a correction or punishment for their sins. Now, a, a lot of people cannot imagine that that could be the case. Eliphaz, the first friend, says no. He, he can't imagine it. He says in verse chapter 4, verse 7, when did the innocent ever suffer? When, when did the innocent suffer? They think that within God's world, everything has to make sense, that everything God does is according to strict justice, And therefore, if someone suffers, it must be some kind of discipline for their sins. But Job's friends should have known better, shouldn't they? It was staring them in the face. And for those of us who know the Lord Jesus, we we should know better as well, shouldn't we? Do the innocent suffer? Well, no one was more righteous, no one more innocent than the Lord Jesus, (coughs) But the suffering he endured led him to utter words of despair. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to his friends, My soul is sorrowful, very sorrowful, even unto death. Now just think of those words for a moment sorrowful, even unto death. What is he saying? What do those words mean except of such a deep despair that it is a despair over life itself? The despair of Job chapter 3? See, why are Job's friends rebuked so harshly? We heard at the end God's, you know, his opinion of the friends. It was surprising, isn't it? Because they're the ones who seem to be upholding God's honour. They want to defend God. They want to uphold his justice. But they are the ones condemned for not telling the truth about God. (laughs) Isn't it surprising? And I think there's two reasons. What's at stake? The first is actually whether I reject or embrace Jesus himself. You know, this is actually why Islam cannot deal with the suffering of Jesus, Islam denies that Jesus died on the cross. And he was switched out for, for Judas, and it just looked like Jesus on the cross. Why is it? Because Islam cannot handle that a, God would let a prophet die such a shameful death. I think there's a similar thing going on in the comfort-loving West where we avoid thinking about it too much and letting the cross shape our view of the Christian life. But here is the suffering servant, the innocent one who undergoes rejection, shame, horrific suffering. He looks cursed by God. And yet it's crucial that we embrace him because that is our hope. There he suffers for us. He takes on the suffering of the world. And if you, if you reject him, if you don't have a place for innocent suffering, then you will lose your hope. The cross is where we find our hope. But the second thing that's at stake here, if, if we're unwilling to accept innocent suffering, is that we won't be able to welcome... Grief, complaint, lament, as we heard the book of Lamentations. See, if you have a view of God that is cause and effect, you won't be able to have patience with those around you who express that kind of confusion and cry out to God. You won't have patience for those who struggle to see God's goodness in, in a particular moment. Of Suffering in their lives, when people ask questions, when they despair, when they don 't just immediately jump to the positive you 'll want to resolve the pain and, and tidy things up quickly rather than allowing that pain to express itself. Sometimes I think we believe that actually the best Christians are stoic Christians who never question, who always just say, blessed be your name. You know, those uh, Hindu uh, gurus who endure pain on purpose, you know, walk through fire on coals and pierce themselves with hooks and things in order to prove that they can handle it. Do we think that those are the best kind of Christians? that to be truly spiritual is just to grin and bear it rather than cry out in anguish? Have you considered Jesus' words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did Jesus know why he had to endure the cross? Of course. We know why Jesus had to go to the cross Of course Jesus knew. Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew that the Christ must be rejected and suffer and die. And yet, he still asks, why? Have you considered that? To to cry out in complaint is not a sin. And we may know that God is good. We may even know that he has some reason for putting us through the pain. But in the middle of that pain... It is okay to cry out. It's okay not to be able to see that reason clearly. When you're in pain, you can't see clearly, can you? Pain clouds your vision, and God knows that. Why? Because God himself experienced it in the person of the Son as he hung on that cross. And so what is the good news here? The good news is that as we come to God and cry out to him in our pain, he welcomes that cry. In fact, he gives us words to to use throughout the scriptures, the Psalms and here in Job. And in that cry, we experience the embrace of a God who embraces our pain. Isn't that... Isn't that good news? We'll hear even better news in the book of Job, but here, just hear this. It is okay to cry out. It is okay even to complain. God knows, God hears, and, and God is ready to embrace you in that. Shall we come to him now and cry out to him? in prayer our father in heaven we thank you for the lord jesus he was willing to come and embrace our suffering to experience it himself and we thank you that you hear us we thank you lord jesus that you're not a stranger to suffering and we pray that you would uh, help us to know how, how to be honest with you, to trust in your goodness and your plan, and yet to use those very words of Scripture that you've given us and to be comfortable with the suffering of others as well. Father, we rejoice in the hope that you have provided us in the suffering of Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.